Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Ah, such relaxing music. We're going to do a show about bedtime stories, and I feel like Mr. Rogers now. Can you cite bedtime stories? Sure you can. Sure. Today we're going to talk about a little mouse who pretends to host a talk show. No, this is a show. This is a show about bedtime stories, and sometimes bed, bedtime stories are for grown-ups too. And sometimes bedtime stories are for grown-ups who can't get their kids to go to sleep. And sometimes bedtime stories are stories kids tell themselves. And all of those kinds of stories are just going to be all together here today in the Magic Kingdom. That is, that is Loudon Wainwright III. It's a song from 1973. Um, and so I don't know whether it's about Rufus or not. But at one point <laughs> on the bridge, he sings, The excuse that you're crazy is useless. And that's often how we feel when dealing with our little children, putting them to bed. Let me back up and say another thing. If you think about the human race as a species, what are we really basically supposed to do? Eat, sleep. I don't know, procreate, poop. I mean, there are, it's just like those are the basics. And considering how much of a basic it is, it's kind of amazing how bad we are at sleeping. A lot of us anyway. Uh, some of us have problems with sleep initiation. That wouldn't be me. Some of us have problems with sleep maintenance. That would be me. But everybody's got some kind of problem or they've got a kid uh, with, a, uh, with a problem, uh, a kid who refuses to go to sleep. Uh, and so that's where the bedtime story comes in. The bedtime story could be a lot of different things. Uh, one of the things I think it can be is sort of a distraction. Okay, instead of thinking about going to sleep, let's think about this other thing that happened to these two kids who almost got cooked by a witch. See, that's not a good bedtime story. Uh, so we're going to talk about all of that today uh, because 
<laughs> and some of it's sort of a 21st century schizoid man problem. I think, you know, the more that we industrialize and digitize, probably the worse we get at sleeping, and it turns up all over the place. And one of the people who tapped in very effectively to that whole level of frustration uh, is our first guest, Adam Mansbach, uh, author, screenwriter, and cultural uh, critic who wrote the famous Not For Children's book, Go the F to Sleep. Uh, I, I'm having to, you know, public radioize the title. You get the idea. Uh, so first of all, um, Adam, welcome to our show. Thank you. So we should say something first about the genesis of, of this book. I mean, I, I think anybody who's ever been the parent of, a, of an infant knows the genesis of this book. But in your own experience and in your own words, what was it? Uh, well, I wrote the book when my oldest daughter, Vivian, was about two. And, you know, sleeping really just was not high on her list of priorities. Um, it would sometimes take her upwards of two hours to fall asleep. And of course, we were not doing any kind of sleep training with her. We were doing uh, the opposite, what is known as attachment parenting, where basically you are trapped in the room with the kid until they fall asleep. And her brain just was not spinning down on command. <laughs> you know, she spent all day learning and expanding her worldview and like at night she wanted to talk about it she didn't want to like pass out when i said so so you know this can be frustrating it is your only time as an adult that you are not parenting so when you fail to achieve this thing a certain level of desperation and possibly insanity sets in you know like at a certain point you would do anything to get out of that room if don corleone walked in the room and was like i will put this baby to bed but in the future, I may ask you to do me a favor. And you're like, whatever, Don Corleone, just we'll work out the details later. Just take this baby. Yeah, I, I actually think that our willingness to strike exactly that kind of devil's bargain says a lot about our desperation at that time. I mean, my son's much older now, but when he was a little baby, we had this device that was kind of um, a swing, an indoor swing that would go back and forth, but it was, you kind of wound it up and it was self-propelled. It would kind of tick-tock back and forth as he sat in it, and that would put him to sleep. And our, our question was... How soon and under what circumstances could we deploy it? Because we just wanted to right. watch Star Trek The Next Generation or something without him yelling. And it seemed like, you know, almost any—when you're in that position, it feels like almost anything's worth it, right? Absolutely. There's nothing that you wouldn't do. And there's no level that you wouldn't debase yourself to either. Like, you know, the the number of people all over the world right now at this very moment who are like, attempting to army crawl out of the room so that the kid, if they wake up, doesn't realize that the parent is there. Or, you know, who have some like elaborate strategy where every 15 minutes they move one inch closer to the door. You know, it's like, yeah, it's it's absurd. And you're, you're held prisoner by this tiny little person um, who, as you said in your intro, in theory, sleep is one of the, the most pleasurable, joyful things we have. So you're also really... I think inclined to levy serious critiques against yourself as a parent when you can't get your kid to do this basic thing that is so essential and so enjoyable. So you wrote this book. It's got this title. The title is kind of a creed de cour. Uh, and um, if there were any doubt about the appetite and audience for this book, it was resolved really before the book was published, right? The book was a PDF when it went to number one on Amazon. Do I have that right? Yeah, you do. Um, you know, when I wrote the book, I didn't 
think that it was going to be something that millions of parents found relatable. I kind of thought it was just for me and a small subset of particularly snarky friends. Um, but, you know, almost as soon as I read it, I wrote it, I read it at a big family gathering and like, you know, 80 year old aunts and 13 year old nephews were laughing. So I sent it to one publisher, which was my friend Johnny Temple at a small Brooklyn house called Akashic Books. Their motto is reverse gentrification of the literary world. So, you know, you can tell they're a real like powerhouse, right? <laughs> um, and Johnny thought it was funny. He had kids who didn't sleep, but neither one of us pulled the, the trigger on publishing it. We kind of sat on it for months because at the time there was really no such thing as an obscene fake children's book. So we couldn't conceive of how this thing would exist in the world. But we sort of kept showing it around and, you know, his wife was like, you have to publish it. And a big moment was Johnny showed it to uh, Jonathan Lethem, the novelist, at some event where Jonathan had made reference to his kids not sleeping and Jonathan thought it was funny. So we sort of slowly decided that, OK, we'll publish it. We'll see what happens. And then about six months before it was supposed to come out, I did a public reading of it at a museum in Philadelphia where I was living. I was actually living at the museum. Um, and uh, I read it to like 200 people. And the PDF was on a screen behind me because we just had made a PDF to send to booksellers because we were concerned that they might not be willing to stock a book called Go the F to Sleep. So I did the reading, it was well received. I didn't think much of it. I went home and went to sleep. And the next day when I checked the book's pre-order page on Amazon, it was in the top 125 in all books. You know, previous to this, I was a literary novelist. I didn't even know that those numbers went any lower than like 50,000, you know? Um, so by the end of the week, the book had hit number one on Amazon. And not to get overly technical, but the book did not exist. The book was six months away from even being printed. So we frantically started trying to rush the book forward, trying to print it in time for Father's Day, which was about two and a half months off. Uh, and then that PDF that we had put together leaked and started ricocheting around the internet. And we were terrified. We thought that this meant we would sell no books, but luckily it's bad form to show up at a baby shower with like a low resolution, printed out, stapled together PDF <laughs> and be like, here, we love you so much. It's such a wonderful time in your life. So. The book hit number one on Amazon at the end of that week and remained stubbornly there all the way up until we published it on Father's Day, uh, which I think was June 14th. That is amazing. By the way, I, not that you needed any marketing help from me, but I, if I were you, I would refer to it as a profane children's book as opposed to an obscene children's book, which Interesting. It, it really isn't. Um, but uh, as I say, you don't need my help. Well, let's hear a little bit of hey, this. Hey, listen, I'll, I'll take all the help I can get, man. You know, we're, we're, we're 12 years in, but anything we could do to get a little sales bump. I think you're right, actually. You're using the term uh, more correctly than I am. Right. I am, in fact, substituting profane for obscene, which I should not be. I am familiar with the difference between the two words, but maybe your listeners aren't. I'd love to hear what the difference actually is so I can remember. <laughs> All right. So meanwhile, um, we want the, the listeners to hear a, a little bit of the book. Uh, so we're going to have it uh, play a little clip of it being read by the beloved children's television host, Samuel L. Jackson. The cats nestle close to their kittens. The lambs have laid down with the sheep. You're cozy and warm in your bed, my dear. 
please go the f- to sleep. So, Adam, we should probably have made this point that it, it's written in the style of uh, of a children's go to sleep book, kind of on the order of Good Night Moon. Although I think that turns out to be some kind of allegory about Swedish socialist materialism or something. But uh, it was for a long time believed to be a children's book. Um, but but that's you're parodying the style, not again so you can read it to a child but so that you can maybe as a couple read it to each other or just take some kind of solitary uh, consolation out of this. Yeah, like most things with the F word in the title, the book is not for children. (laughs) Um, And I I remain, you know, all these years later, I remain sort of stunned by the particular mix of literacy and illiteracy that it would take to mistakenly read this book to a child. And to the people who remain up in arms about my use of profanity in what they seem to insist is a children's book, despite the fact that it literally says on the back cover, you probably should not read this book to a child. <laughs> uh, and yes, the book is really, it's the, it's, it's a mashup of a traditional snoozy animal heavy ABCB rhyme scheme bedtime board book with an honest parental monologue. Uh, it's that simple. So, you know, profanity comes very naturally to me and organically to me. So I didn't set out to do anything particularly transgressive. I just tried to honestly convey my own interior monologue. Right. So this caused you to get into a beef with one very, very tough customer, a guy who really is kind of the Kanye of children's culture, a guy who will throw down with anybody at the slightest provocation. You got into it with Rafi. Tell us I about this. I did get into it with Rafi. Yeah. You know, I think I was on Canadian national radio talking about the book. And I, I, I'm trying to remember, I don't know if Rafi called in or if Rafi just started like tweeting about my interview. I think it was the latter because I yeah. guess I would remember if I was like face to face, head to head, voice to voice with Rafi. But yeah, Rafi seemed to be among those who didn't understand that the book was not intended for children and sort of like in some vague and self-righteous way accused me of, I don't know, like ruining everybody's childhood. And I was like, homie. What are you talking about? Have you lost your mind? Like, this book is in no way intended for children. Go back to singing about whales or something and leave me alone. Yeah, I read the whole Twitter thread. First of all, he starts by using the word crass as a verb. He says something like, Adam Mansbach can crass on his own time. I've never, huh. I've never seen "cross" used as a yeah, as an intransitive verb. Um, that seems dramatically incorrect. Yeah, I, once again, I'm maybe I'm over obsessing about the, those kinds of <laughs> kinds of details. But yeah, I think the other thing that he's invoking and that probably gets invoked a little bit, although with each passing year it erodes, is that kind of sense that childhood is this semi sacred space. Uh, and actually, uh, to, I will quote another profane. A statement by a wonderful but profane person, Maurice Sendak, when he was talked about, talk, when he talked about the vividness and, and the kind of transgressiveness of where the wild things are or in the night kitchen, he said, I refuse to lie to children. I refuse to cater to the bullspit of innocence. I had to adjust that one word a little bit. But, <laughs> but that notion, Sendak, you know, just categorically rejected the notion that everything for children, I realize your book isn't for children, but you were, I think, seen as intruding on that same kind of space, that space that's supposed to have this this kind of halo uh, of calm and innocence around it. 
Yeah, I think that's right. That's certainly where some of the indignation came from. You know, luckily, with the exception of taking a personal interest in telling Rafi to uh, leave me alone, <laughs> Rafa. I was able to. Yeah, I was mostly able to let the fans of the book sort of do the work of defending it. The librarians of America, for example, were vociferous in their support of the book when it faced censorship uh, attempts and things of that nature. Um, you know, we had incurred on the zeitgeist to an extent that the book sort of became a topic for everybody's think piece. You know, some of them real stretches, you know, like there was somebody who was like, what if this book was about Jews or black people or gay people? And I was like, it is, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but to your point, yeah, this invocation of the precious innocence of childhood, you know, first of all, seems to be, to me, to be a, a fairly recent and ahistorical phenomenon. I mean, like, take a look at traditional lullabies for kids. They're filled with violence and terror. Uh, Go to F to Sleep pales in comparison to anything that, you know, Hans Christian Andersen ever wrote or Rockabye Baby, for that matter. Um, so, but I think also the reason, paradoxically, the reason that Go the F to Sleep was successful was that it punctured the bubble of this sort of culturally enforced notion of preciousness. A lot of parents, I think, were laboring under the idea that they could not be honest about the struggles they went through, that the moments when they felt frustrated, the moments when they felt angry were unspeakable, were forbidden to them. And so this book offered a certain kind of catharsis because it said the quiet part loud. It said the unspeakable part and made people realize that it's okay to be angry and frustrated and that you can either cry about it alone or laugh about it together. Um, one of the greatest emails I got in the, uh, in the whole history of the book was from a therapist, a couples therapist who had a lot of clients who were young parents. And she said that she had started handing out the book to them to basically normalize the experience that they were all going through and let them know it was okay. Right. I think that's, that's true. So last question, you now have young kids again. Um, and so how's that going? Uh, are you finding a need to go off in a corner and read your own book from the good old days? Well, yeah, it's funny. I mean, my, my oldest Viv, who I wrote the book about is 15 now, which is hard to believe. And I now have a six-year-old daughter and a four-year-old daughter. I have three daughters, like a, like a farmer in a joke. Um, and you might think that like, I could sit back and have an ironic chuckle about how like my kids still won't go to bed, even though I wrote this book, even though I'm the fame, I'm famous for writing a book about how kids won't go to sleep. Let me tell you, it makes it no less frustrating. <laughs> like I'm sitting here just as furious as ever when my youngest, who is like one of the funniest people I've ever met. She's like an Andy Kaufman type performance artist. She elevates not going to sleep to a level previously unconceived of like the stuff she will pull is genius she's the comic voice of her generation and am i laughing no not when i'm in that room <laughs> later i can laugh but in that room my blood is boiling to the exact same temperature it ever has uh, on that beautiful note uh, we will conclude adam mansbach is a novelist screenwriter and the author of the very very famous not at all for children children's book go the f to sleep we'll be back with more after this I wonder 
in my vision Stepping with light feet Swiftly and noiselessly stepping And stopping Bending with open eyes Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. One store's away to get back homeward. One store's away to get back home. Sleep pretty, darling, do not cry. And I will sing a lullaby. See, when it takes that turn, I just think this is not going to be sleep music anymore. However, we're not talking about sleep music. We're talking about sleep, prose, and poetry. We're talking about bedtime stories. Uh, And I should say, before I even get into this, that I am the kind of person who needs a certain amount of noise when I fall asleep. It can be music. It often is music. And if it is music, I will wake up. I will wake up the next day with one of the songs stuck in my head for, I don't know, three, four hours. Uh, it's just, it's a weird, you know, hypnopatic phenomenon or something. Or I will listen to a really boring podcast. So I, or at least a podcast that sounds boring. I like to listen to Ezra Klein and not cause he's boring, but there's, it's just, I'm reassured by him. So now we're going to talk to a pro though, for all of that kind of stuff. Faith Adiele uh, is a travel writer, speaker, teacher, and formerly Thailand's first black Buddhist nun. We actually have a listener in Bangkok. Hi, Brett. Uh, so uh, she, likes, she writes sleep stories for adults on the Calm app. Faith, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So first of all, maybe just tell us about your own lifelong historic relationship with sleep literature. I mean, I'm assuming since you're doing this now that when you were a a little bitty one, somebody read bedtime stories to you. Oh, my God, definitely. Um, I loved being read to. My mom read to me. She made up her own stories and then she started just collecting stories. And um, yeah, if she wasn't doing the voices right, I would refuse. (laughs) I would interrupt. I would throw a fit. And uh, I've always loved being read to, um, yeah, and then sung to to wake up. 
Yeah, the voices are really important too. I think um, when my son was little, I think my my ex wife is the one who, who came up with this originally. But in the uh, uh, Seuss book, "One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish," there's this one section that goes, "Look what we found in the dark in the park. We shall take him home. We shall name him Clark." And it goes on like that. But there's a like you have to do if you do it once, you've got to do it every single time, right? If you do a right. Scottish accent <laughs> yeah. for a, if a bird has a Scottish <laughs> accent the first time you do. It, that you're stuck with that for the rest of your life, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, so you were, you know, pursuing a fairly more conventional writing career. The pandemic came, and suddenly, I think probably a, suddenly a lot of people were trying to figure out how to get to sleep. But explain how you got into this particular genre. Yeah, um, as a travel writer, a lot of my stuff dried up during the pandemic, and so I had a lot of spare time. wasn't sure what I was going to do. And um, I had attended a kind of a travel sketching workshop with a friend, um, realized that I could not draw, but I really connected with the woman. It turns out she worked for Calm, does um, wrote stories, narrated them, and also kind of draws the covers. And so she recommended me and, you know, hooked me up and said, you know, she used to be a, a Buddhist nun. Uh, this might be the person. I had an info call. I said, it sounds absolutely crazy because the whole point of travel writing is to have things happen. And it seems like sleep stories are the antithesis of that. I have no idea how to do it. So sign me up. (laughs) Well, so is it really true, though? I mean, obviously, you can't have slam bang bang action sequences going on in in sleep stories. But a story is a story. Something has to happen in a story. Say some more about that. I think the idea with sleep stories, and I had to, you know, really learn everything was that the story is based on the senses. And so you have to really create a world and then gently usher the reader through the world, letting them experience it completely and and feel taken care of, and then give them little tidbits of information. So they're having a cultural experience um, and maybe kind of, you know, adding things themselves. Um, And then there's a wind down to help people. Once we've seen something really wonderful, kind of coming to some sort of conclusion about the world or the place, and then, you know, reassured, then sliding into sleep. So it's sort of interesting what we think of as a sleep story. Um, And um, I think it's going to be different for adults than it is for kids. Kids think about Mm -hmm. stories a certain way. Just to give people a a sample, one of the things Carolyn McCusker, the producer of this episode, did was ask children to uh, tell bedtime stories. So you're going to hear Mabel Kamrowski, who is seven years old and in the second grade, telling a bedtime story, which I think she's making up right on the spot. This is A1 Dylan. Once upon a time, there was a little sheep who loved um, playing in the yard with his friends. And so he was eating grass. And then one day, his friend came over and he asked him, do you want to go to the lake and play with um, Chad, Lily, and Bud? And he said yes. And then they went over to the pond. And then for some reason, the water started to move. And then there was a giant that came. And that giant said, go home. It's bedtime. <laughs> so the little sheep went to bed. The end. So, so I mean, that's kind of interesting, right, Faith? Because, I mean, her instinct is, well, it's a story. Something's got to happen. They'll go right. down to the water. A giant will come out. Um, <laughs> but react a little bit to that. It's it's so adorable. I mean, you see the imagination at play. And then you can tell that, like, this child has been told to go to sleep as well. Like, yes. the end. I love how children's stories just end so abruptly. Like, we have a scenario, and then we need to get where we're going. <laughs> 
But I, I think there's sort of two schools of thought about children, too. There's the school of thought. I mean, you know, Dr. Seuss actually did a book called The Sleep Book, and it was just like people just kind of going to sleep. And and I do remember that it was kind of comforting. It was a little bit of, you know, a monotone compared to what Seuss was usually racing around with and delving into and stuff like that. But there's that sense that, yes, a sleep story, a bedtime story for a child should be comforting and soothing. On the other hand, right now, all over the world, people are t- in the next 24 hours, probably thousands and probably millions of people will read their kids to sleep with something like Maurice Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are, where you've got right. monsters hopping around and stuff like that. You know, G.K. Yeah. G.K. Chesterton said, fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children, mm. children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales yeah. tell children that dragons can be killed. Um, mm. And so, you know, there's sort of that sense that children already have kind of vivid imaginations. They're already wondering if there's a monster in the room. Sendak said, right. okay, there's a monster in the room. Here's what he's like, and he's going to be fun, right? But when you're writing for adults, I feel like it might be different. Like, you know, we're all pretty wound up, yes. <laughs> and we're lying yes. in bed. So say, say something about, I mean, I think in a way, you got to have almost fewer dragons and giants coming out of the water when you're dealing with a 42-year-old insomniac. Yeah. I, I Well, I think it's interesting that almost all of the sleep stories are travel stories. So I think we have this fantasy of being swept away from our normal life. You know, we're we're on a, a train going through, you know, beautiful scenery or we're on a beach. Um, there are a certain number of them that are fables kind of maybe, you know, tapping into our childhood. But it's really about this idea of escape taking us someplace and then this kind of sly cultural detail. That's And that's really my focus is I really focus on Black and Africana content for Calm. And so really kind of trying to tell new narratives about, you know, what we've learned about Africa. And so I'm always kind of trying to get in some cultural information as well. So people will feel like they've had this armchair travel and they've acquired some skills while taking time to just kind of meditate on the landscape the way that we do use vacations and travel. Right. And so, I mean, sort of give a sense of like what would a typical faith story on the column out be? What, what, what would be what would it consist of? What has it consisted of? Um, well, the very first one that I ever did when I was like madly learning uh, how, to, how to do one was um, because we had a contact with Idris Elba. And so I had to write for Idris Elba. You're welcome. <laughs> and so I based it on a true story where I'd taken a group of students to Lesotho And I realized that not very many people knew about the country of Lesotho. And so I really um, tried to, you know, take us to this small little country in the middle of South Africa, kind of place us there, um, kind of teach you some things like before we're going to go trekking with ponies across the landscape, we want to stop in and, you know, pay respects to the village headman and like have some personal interactions. And then we're going to go through, you know, traveling over the landscape, learning about ponies, uh, seeing, uh, visiting the caves where like the first people wrote. And so we're seeing, you know, the cave paintings and just really going through the landscape and kind of learning the majesty of the country, interacting with uh, small shepherds. And so it's always really the types of things if you were doing slow travel, you would learn culture and history, you would see beautiful things, uh, you would interact with people in kind of pleasant ways um, and then eventually, you know, drift off to sleep. Right. You've been fortunate uh, in your uh, voice talents. I know you've, you've done these two <laughs> things for World of Calm in each, on HBO, one voice by Kate Winslet, the other one by Mahersha Ali. There may be others that I don't even know about, but it, it's got to be nice to have people that talented conveying your words. 
it's really wonderful. Um, yeah, so much when you're a writer, you're just kind of laboring by yourself, alone, <laughs> tortured, wondering if your words will ever see the light of day. And so to actually have specific talents and be trying to think of their syntax and and their voice and their personality uh, in your writing is just a really wonderful collaboration that I never expected would hap- would arise out of the pandemic. So as we were getting ready for this, our, our producer, Carolyn McCusker, said, you know, it would be good, she said to me, if you wrote a bedtime story uh, and then Faith could critique it. And then she said, and, and make it not too good so she'll have some things, you know, that she can she give you clues about. I thought, well, I can do that. When you you put it that way, I can do that. Actually, as it turned out, I was sort of in the process already uh, of um, writing. uh, So I'll give a quick backstory, which is that I I have a granddaughter who I address as the penguin. uh, And then I recently gave her a stuffed penguin. And now I've started writing letters to the penguin from other penguins who live back home where the penguins come from. You know, my granddaughter is 31 years old. She's divorced. She doesn't even want to have any part of this. But no, I'm kidding. She's a very young girl. But... um, (laughs) But uh, so so I, I gave one to Carolyn. She uh, sent it to you. This is basically just – I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it, it's a letter uh, to a penguin named Merle uh, who is in fact living in a you know, house in Connecticut, although I didn't really make that point. But the, the idea was to tell the child that this is you – know, this is about a pen- – this is a letter to a penguin who's left home and the penguin okay. has gone off on an adventure and the, the, the brother and sister back home who are named Bob and Sherry – uh, are uh, are writing to talk about sort of news from back home, and they they you know say a little bit about what they've heard about where Merle is living, and they they talk a little bit about Molly, this wildlife biologist who's been there, kind of studying them and how they make her show them March of the Penguins on her laptop over and over again, uh, <laughs> and then they go down and they they visit. Um, they visit a, a friend of theirs, a penguin named Madeline, who's hurt her foot, but her foot's getting better. And then at the end, we have kind of just a description of these penguins looking at the sun, sunset and getting ready for bed. So uh, the floor is yours. If there's anything in particular you want me to read, I can do that. I think I've got it here in front of me. But uh, what, were, what were your thoughts about this? Uh, my favorite section was the the March of the Penguins. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so if you wanted to read that, that would be great. All right, sure. Okay, so here, here let me just find that again. Okay, uh, they say she's just the best and sleeps in a tent in the place where the big rock is next to the other thing. On her laptop, she showed us a movie called March of the Penguins. Merle, it is the best movie ever made, and you should totally get the people who live beside your swimming pool to show it to you. We watched it once, and we were like, again. So Molly started it back up, and we were like, again. This went on for a whole day until Molly said something about her battery. <laughs> I love that. And I mean, it really ties into what Adam was saying earlier about go the F to sleep. Yeah. Like, there's never enough story. Again, so that to me, I was like, any child listening to that is really going to feel seen there. Um, and it's, of course, really humorous for adults as well. And I think that's kind of the beauty of you know, stories for kids that they, you know, they work on two levels. So I saw that you had like hidden all these little Easter eggs, these little jokes, um, you know, throughout the um, throughout the story. Yeah, I, was- I, I grew up, I'm really old, but I grew up um, with a father who would watch Rocky and Bullwinkle with me. 
and he would mm. laugh at a completely different set of things from what I was laughing at. You right. know, the, <laughs> exactly. there were all these embedded, very adult puns and things like that in there. So, yeah, I think we kind of do that. So I want to read something that I think you think may be a miscalculation on my part. So they're okay. they're watching the sunsets, uh, sunset, these three penguins, uh, and, um, and sh- they quote Molly again, the marine biologist. Molly says the sunsets here are not like anywhere else. She says they're like a fancy dessert with layers of cream and strawberries and peaches. Apparently, mm-hmm. dessert is something you eat after you've had your fish, which really doesn't make any sense. So you, <laughs> you think food is maybe not a great thing to bring up at bedtime? Apparent, yes. We, we were told not to have food, which is hard for me, too, because part of travel writing so, so often is food writing. But the idea is that people would start to get hungry. They'd start to wake up. They'd get excited. They'd want a snack. And we know that, you know, a kid can draw out getting, you know, a glass of water, you know, for, for hours. And so, yeah, you're not supposed to. Yeah. So you're not supposed to be too interesting. And food is one of those things that then will spark the brain and the sleep and, you know, and sleep will run away. So one of the things that you've brought up, which I think is really fascinating, you might have heard me say earlier that I I often will listen to music when I fall asleep, and then I Mm -hmm. wake up and I've got some idiotic song stuck in my head for hours and hours. There's a stickiness, right, to what we are listening to when we fall asleep. And so it's probably kind of important. If it's not music, if it's words and words that connect to images, it's important what those words are. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, told that, you don't want things that are, you know, too uh, too unusual, long vocabulary that people aren't used to, um, things that are kind of tied to that might be triggers for folks. You know, so you're really trying to think about things that are um, soothing, um, easy to say, um, but aren't going to make people say, oh, oh, what's, you know, what's that about? Oh, I'm concerned. Or what does that mean? And so there are, you know, things that, that we avoid, um, you know, when trying to just try to appeal to as many people as possible. And that's one of the things I think that I brought to the sleep stories is that I, you know, my experience is, you know, I'm really into kind of diversity and inclusion and really trying to write things that will work on a global level for like all folks. And so really trying to think about what are terms that might be loaded um, and that might get in the way of really trying to deal with kind of an epidemic of sleeplessness that we've had since the pandemic. So, yeah, and I, I think also a point that you made uh, about my story is that there's a penguin uh, in this story who's hurt her foot, and her name is Madeline, and her foot's right. getting better. But right. you, what? Well, you should say what you thought about this because you got me thinking about it in a certain way. But explain what you what you thought about that. Well, I wondered if that would be, then be, you know, stressful. So then the kind of kid is like wondering, like, how did it get hurt? And do I have to be worried about Merrill? And, you know, it is that question of like, do we want to name things that kids are already dealing with? And I think that's what daytime literature does. But evening literature, you don't want to have any kind of lingering thoughts. I like, oh, you know, do I want them to feel sad or worry that Merle is separated from her siblings? or that there's another penguin that's hurt. And so, like, if I rewrote the story, maybe we would have Merle coming back to the island and kind of talking about her life um, that she had had in Connecticut, but now she's back to Antarctica. And so then she's being our guide, walking us through this landscape as someone who's returned to it kind of joyfully, um, which we still get, you know, the two cultures, but it's a different approach that might feel more 
welcoming and comforting. Does that make sense? Yes. I, I should say that one reason that I picked the name Merle is that it's kind of gender ambiguous. And my, I'm planning to write more letters to Merle from these two penguins, Bob mm. and Jerry. But I, I'm hoping to never have to. I mean, I think Merle's going to be kind of they them uh, for mm-hmm. uh, most of all this. I love but that. What I what I thought uh, from what you said. Uh, this will probably be the last thing we get to talk about is if you're going to bring up a problem in a sleep story, you should solve it, right? In, right. in other words, if there's going to be a hurt foot, then it's got to get better by the time right. you're done. Right. You can't leave them hanging about anything. But I assume that's right. kind of where yeah. you're – I can't sleep yeah. <laughs> until I know the, the state of this foot. <laughs> so you could have a dragon, but, you know, you got to slay the dragon. Everybody's got to know that, okay, we're we're back to normal. Everything's pretty good. Right. And it may need to happen before the end because I get letters from people all the time and they're like, I love your story and I still haven't heard the end. <laughs> I fell oh, that's, asleep. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I, so I guess one question I would have is, are you a good sleeper? Bad? Sleep? I, I hate to use value driven terms, although I've been informed by my partner numerous times that I am a bad sleeper. Uh, but but how's your sleep? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a disordered sleeper. The older I get. Uh, and so my husband and I are both kind of like careening around, going from one room to the other as one wakes up and tries not to, <laughs> to wake the other. And so we're shifting between rooms <laughs> like sleepwalkers all, all night. Well, I would think one of the dangers is that, I mean, the worst thing you can do if you're not sleeping well is kind of bring your work home with you. But your work's yeah. in bed with you already. You're in the bedtime story business. It's going to be a little bit counterproductive. I know, and I want to listen to them without critiquing them. I just want to enjoy them and not think of it as homework. Are you able to do that? Sometimes, if it's complete, yes. Yeah. I mean, I have the same thing. Like, if I can hear about trains, you know, trains put me to sleep, and, and listening to stories about trains is kind of a sweet spot for me. Yeah. I think horses are a good choice, too. That's good. Horses, like, everybody... I mean, there's like wine therapy. They calm people down. So that was a good one. All right. Well, we've been talking to Faith Adiele, uh, travel writer, speaker, a teacher, formerly Thailand's first black Buddhist nun. I hope there's not somebody else going to call him out and say, no, no, it was me. I was before Faith. Uh, Yeah. As far as we know, the Guinness Book of World (laughs) Records says she is. And she writes sleep (laughs) stories for adults on the Calm app. We'll be back with what kids think a sleep story is after this. Colin McEnroe Show on Facebook or Twitter at Colin McShow. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to or following our podcast on any podcast app. It's free. You don't have to wait an hour after eating before you go swimming. That's just something our mothers believed. Back to the show. Time to say some thank yous. Our technical producer today is Dylan Rays. This episode was actually produced by McCusker, a.k.a. Carolyn McCusker. And so, yes, you know, if you're like me or perhaps like Carolyn McCusker, you have a little trouble getting to sleep at night. 
I do. I mean, I have trouble staying asleep, too. Uh, and it probably all goes back to childhood. And maybe we just need the kind of bedtime stories that we were told when we were children. So if you're a grown-up listening right now and you are lying in bed tonight feeling stressed out by the idea of the next day's work, we've brought in some experts on childlike bedtime imagination. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name's Hadel. I'm seven. What's your name? My name's Henry. I'm five. So kids are usually the recipients of bedtime stories. But we wanted to know what kind of story kids would tell at night if someone gave them the chance. We love Once Upon a Time stories because we get to make up it. We get to say some of the lines. It's so fun. So we are going to do a bedtime story. Once Upon a Time... Hadel and Henry were going on an adventure. Who was going with them? Pandy, which is my sister animal, and my missing little Kira, and then some other people that are coming with me too. Mama. Um, what well, one of the names Mama. are Henry, which is my brother, and, and and Mama. Sometimes we bring along the Rock, or Blippi. The Rock is my favorite character. I never say it out loud because I feel embarrassed, but right now I feel encouraged to do it. I like Flippy. Once upon a time, Hadel, Henry, Kira, Pandy, Mom, The Rock, Blippy, went on an adventure. And Mama. And Mom. And Dad. And Dad. And Hadel. And me. So today our adventure is going to be to save the Disney princesses from the minions. So so let me let me start the story and then you guys can fill in the blanks. So so the minions stole a bunch of Disney princesses. So Hadel, Henry and the crew had to go figure out how to save them. They need to Go in the magic forest, because that's where they can collect all our stuff. I love that. So we're in the magical forest. That's the first place we go to find clues. And what kind of clues did we find to help us figure out where the princesses are? We saw little tiny minion footprints. And we um followed the footprints where um it takes us to... um. The princesses where they got stolen and captured. We also saw a button from one of those minions. Oh, from his overalls? Mm, that is a, those are great clues. So they found the clues, and the next thing they did... And then the next bite, they found another clues. That's right, because we're going to go past the deep, dark forest... And past the beautiful forest and past the zombie forest. <gasps> the zombie forest. How do we get through the zombie forest? Hadel, no, no, Henry, no, 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 no. Kira, yeah. Pandy, Blippi, The Rock. We all have these special zombie eliminators. So we can use those zombie eliminators to eliminate all the zombies. But when I was walking through the forest with my crew, I saw something unusual. You know how trees are supposed to be um, 
um, standing straight up. I saw the the trunk was in the air and the leaves were on the ground. So that's unusual. So we got through the scary forest. We got through the zombie forest, and then we followed the trail of candy to a deep dark cave. <gasps> <laughs> So you went deeper into the cave, and there was a lot of different rooms in that cave. But when we were halfway in, looking through all of them, we heard a creaking sound. Then something unusual happened. You heard, boom! And what was it? And it was, it was a minion going through the hallways, closing the doors fastly so nobody will see him. Hmm. So you go one by one to all the different doors in the cave, and finally you come upon one. I think the princesses might be in that one. Then why do you think the princesses are on there? Because there's sparkles coming out from under the door, and Hadel and Henry go. They're tiptoeing. But th- but um, they might be unicorns in there because unicorns make sparkles. Oh. So we open the door, and oh, it's just unicorns. Wrong door. I was right. There was unicorns in there. Now let me be right again. So seeing where they are. Oh, look at that door. The minion is opening it and saying, "Stay in there, princesses, or I'll put that sleeping spell on you again." And then Henry pulls into his pocket a little pouch. And what did? What's in the pouch? What kind of magic is it? Um, um. Just so the minions can fall asleep there. Yes, the minions. For 100 seconds. So Henry sprinkles dust on the minions that they see, and they all fall asleep. And quickly, quietly, Hadel and Henry tiptoe into the room. <gasps> they found the princesses, and the princesses were so happy to see Hadel and Henry and their whole crew. <gasps> they finally were saved. So they brought the princesses back to their kingdoms, and all of the kingdoms were so grateful. And do you you know what? I'm more grateful that I had my friends with me all the time, and I wasn't scared because they were all on my back. That's right. To thank Hadel and Henry for all their bravery, what did the kings and queens give you as a thank you? A big giant candy bar. A snow globe. You make a wish, you shake it, you can do how many wishes as you want. When you get old, when you get younger, then you can go back in time and thank everybody you want. What a great story. And then, there's another story. There was a dragon. There was a little unicorn. And he was buff. He was practicing his aim with fire. They all had their very special hobbies and powers. Elphabuzz was she could fly. And Lacey's with that was that she was a very good fashion expert. But by accident, he slipped on an ice cube. And fell on his head. Eaten a special type of cake that would heal his skull fully so he could keep practicing with fire. All the swans in the whole valley started working together. They were heroes of the marshmallow village. The end. The end? The end. <laughs> That's nice. 
And that's our show. Uh, thank you to all the children who donated their imagination for this segment of the show. Hadel and Henry Galvin. My name's Hadel. My name's Henry. Evelyn and Mabel Komrowski. This is Mabel. My name is Evelyn. And Nico and Matteo Melcher, who happen to be the twin godsons of our sleep story connoisseur. I'm Nico. And I'm Matteo Melcher. And we got to say goodnight. Goodnight. Go to sleep, all right? Go to sleep right now, unless you're driving. Goodnight. Good night. Good night.